Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. O's Intensive Care Manual, um, chapter 26, they devote a whole chapter to this um, concept of post-cardiac surgery. And for those of us who work in cardiac units, the arrival of several post-cardiac surgery patients a day in your unit is kind of a routine part of the day. At least it was pre-pandemic anyhow. As such, it represents a kind of a fairly predictable workload in a patient cohort for your ICU. And given the bewildering number of conditions that could present to a general or a mixed intensive care unit on any given day, knowing that you have a couple of hearts moving along the production line provides a degree of predictability to the workflow. The scheduled and usually elective nature of cardiac surgery lends itself to large-scale outcome prediction, and indeed cardiac surgery has often found its outcomes examined very closely over the past few decades. Outcomes are often examined in great detail and are more likely than most patient cohorts to be reflected upon the hospital um, and sometimes even on individual surgeons. So today we'll focus mainly on the routine cardiac surgery patient and some of the, the common significant issues that you might face. Um, before we look at anything kind of more specific, it's worth maybe addressing the actual handover from theatre. There is frankly an awful lot of information to assimilate and sift through. You will often be receiving handover from the anaesthesia time, but also at the same time trying to tease out information from the surgeons um, almost at the same time. But some key points of information that you're looking to glean from that handover process, um, maybe as follows. So let's start. Let's, let's think about the pre-surgical state. Um, so what was the patient like before they went for surgery? Um, and that can include even what the heart looked like on T on transesophageal echo pre-bypass. That's a commonly done thing. Before they even go on bypass, they have a look at the heart. So for example, is the ventricle, does it look good? Does it look bad? Even the baseline. Um, secondly, what was done and how the plumbing stands as of now. So if there's been various bypass grafts, what have they been connected to? Where were they taken from? If it's some kind of congenital cardiac stuff, it could be plumbing, could be everywhere. Think about, thirdly, um, the bypass time, the cross-clamp time. Those are important numbers to know to give you an idea of how complex and how tricky things were. Um, number four, how did the separation from bypass go? Um, was this a kind of a very amicable, mutual ending of the relationship or was this kind of a, a very long and drawn-out and painful divorce? So at this stage, are they on two pressures and two inotropes and maybe a bit of nitric or have they arrived on some propofol and maybe a little tincture of noradrenaline and a big sticky label stuck to them saying, extubate me? Um, next one, let's think about heart rhythm and presence and need for pacing. So it's quite common for people to have heart rhythm problems um, coming out of cardiac surgery, particular valvular surgery. Uh, and it will be a common practice to leave epicardial pacing leads uh, in place. You can simply look at the monitor, look at the pacer. Um, is the heart rate appropriate? Um, do they have a, a backup pacing rhythm set in place? Are they likely to need that in due course? Um, at this stage it's always worth thinking about what did the heart look like on TOE following the surgery so is the valvular lesion that was there actually fixed or have they still got torrential MR um, are they dare I use the terrible phrase underfilled um, when they look at the actual ventricle it's worth thinking as well about the products that were given, so blood plasma platelets um, and the current state of reversal. Remember these people have had colossal doses of heparin um, to maintain the bypass run. They will have been reversed, but they are they going to need a little bit more prudamine in time? Um, have a look at the drains, where they are and what they're doing. So are they just mediastinal drains or is there plural drains in place as well? Worth asking the question, was that 400 mils of red stuff there when you left theatre or has it just appeared as we've moved the patient onto the trolley? Um, contrary to most ICU patients, cardiac surgery patients often benefit from a little bit of infusion of the salty water stuff. Um, this is kind of likely driven by rewarming induced vasodilation and hypothermia induced diuresis and they can be hypovolemic. 
It doesn't take them long to transition to the more conventional ICU patient where fluid does nothing but increase the edema, but in the first 6-12 to 12 hours, um, fluid resuscitation does indeed have a role. Episodes of hypotension are common and the major concerning causes in the early phases are going to be surgical bleeding or tamponade. Um, those drains that you checked at handover are both diagnostic and therapeutic. If you get a big gush of blood from the drain and hypotension, that usually suggests that the problem is bleeding. Um, but the drains are also therapeutic in that they're hopefully going to relieve um, any potential for tamponade. So significant bleeding might be say 200 mils an hour in the first hour or um, maybe 100 mils an hour after that. Unfortunately, blood can clot focally around the heart, causing a focal tamponade, which is something that we wouldn't really see in any other situation. This can be a bit tricky to diagnose, as one might imagine, and indeed some form of imaging is often needed to make the diagnosis. O's manual is very down on the utility of transthoracic echocardiac surgery patients, and while of course you're not going to get all the windows you would normally get with the transthoracic echo, a good sonographer can usually answer many of the key questions in the hypotensive cardiac surgery patient. That being said, if the patient is crashing, you do and will often need a transesophageal echo to look at the tricky spots, like behind the left atrium, where clots have a tendency to form, obstructing LA inflow and maybe causing all your hypotension. Both surgical bleeding and tamponade are surgical issues that once diagnosed should prompt a return to theatre. Any major issues with shock in the first 12 to 24 hours should always have return to theatre somewhere on the list of possible interventions. Finally, for tamponade, uh, I wouldn't forget the CVP. While much maligned in general critical care when it comes to cardiac surgical patients, the CVP does provide some nice screening information um, for issues like tamponade and right ventricular function. It's a nice kind of end of the bed you can look up and you, you wouldn't necessarily cross things off your list, but it would certainly reduce likelihood of those problems if your CVP is nice and low. Atrial fibrillation is common everywhere um, in the ICU and it's unsurprisingly it is also common in the cardiac surgery population. Its, its incidence comes in somewhere around 20% or so. Much of it occurs beyond the first 24 hours, often when they have left my particular unit. And causes are numerous and much of the basics will happen automatically with correction of things like potassium and magnesium by the nursing staff. And it remains unclear what the best way is to manage cardiac surgery related AFib. But the usual suspects of beta blockers and amiodarone are the commonest interventions. I would say vitamin A probably leads the way in our intensive care unit, particularly when they're still a bit sick and shocked and they're still ventilated and tends to be more libido blockers and playing more of a role once the tube is out and the pressors um, have gone away. Cardioversion is probably not the way to go for these patients. Interestingly, I just read an RCT uh, linked to in the show notes that suggests leaving the, uh, leaving the pericardium open a small bit at the end of surgery reduced the rates of post-op AFib from 30% to 17% with no significant consequences. It was single centre, it may well disappear in the midst of unreproducible research, but it would be a nice move if it does turn out that way. And um, For reading, most of this is gleaned from O's Intensive Care Manual, Chapter 26. Thank you for listening and I'll speak to you next time.